The Ministry Apprenticeship Programme at City Church Dublin seeks to develop the individual in three main areas. Character, calling and competency. As part of our Ministry Apprenticeship Programme, we are assigned different assignments throughout the year that help us to grow in these three areas, especially our competency. Today's recording is taken from an apprentice training exercise, developing a teaching programme on the topic of predestination. A disclaimer to begin that this is not an exhaustive exercise and there is a lot that I would have enjoyed including but simply don't have space for. This is a theological topic that facilitates a vast amount of discussion but that tends to generate more heat than light. And with this in mind, I seek to deal with this theological concept by faithfully handling the biblical text. Predestination causes us to think of salvation as it addresses the process by which we are saved. It adds to what theologians call the order of salvation. It alters our understanding of how salvation works. For example, the Catholic understanding of the order of salvation tells us that sanctification precedes justification. All our meritorious work going towards being justified. What we will look at through this presentation are two contrasting views that we will focus on. That of a reformed or Calvinistic approach to predestination and the Arminian view. A reformed understanding has God's election as number one, that God has chosen the individuals that he has secondly predestined, that they are ordained to salvation. Then those individuals are called through the gospel message. God regenerates them that they can trust in faith, repent of their sin, be justified, sanctified, preserved, and glorified. God is at work from the beginning to the end. The Arminian understanding reveals that the calling of God through his gospel is foremost, which is then accompanied by prevenient grace, enabling a person to believe. Then the individual trusts, repents, and then is regenerated, justified, preserved, and glorified. Starts with gospel calling. God interacts. Faith is the choice of man. God is included, but not from beginning to end. Man has the power of final self-determination. These differences arise because of their view of man's natural ability to respond to God and live in such a way that pleases him. The contention of the Reformed understanding is that man is completely unable to save himself. He is totally depraved. Not that he is as bad as he could be, but that every area of his life is fallen and corrupted by sin. It is therefore not possible in his understanding for him to act toward God in faith without God first acting on his behalf. The dominant image used to describe humanity's natural state is one of death. We are a spiritual corpse. We have neither the will nor the ability to act towards God. And consequently, God is justified in his judgment on all mankind. This means that predestination to salvation is not the arbitrary selection of some and not other. Rather, it is God's work of grace to save some of an otherwise condemned race. In order to more fully understand that, we will, we will grapple with why God does it. This is the question of end goals, and it is one that Ephesians 1 addresses directly very different understandings that lead us into an understanding of where people view and value God's sovereign grace when it comes to their salvation. It should be noticed that we can see evidence of God's sovereign election throughout scripture. 
Jacob and Esau. We read in Deuteronomy that God tells Israel that it wasn't because they were the greatest nation that he chose them, but because he loved them. And we see God's sovereign election in the life of King David as well. There will be particular passages that we look at today that will address this issue head on, and these will be our focus of our study. Predestination and election are terms that are found within the Bible. Predestination is found six times in the New Testament. We see it in Acts 4, 28. We see it in Romans 8, 28 to 30, which will be a focus passage for us through this presentation. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 1, 5, and verse 11. It's an important doctrine that must be given due attention. Election is seen more throughout the Bible, seen around 25 times between the two testaments. It refers to being chosen, picked out, one out of many. A few examples of this are John 13, 18. Ephesians 1, 4, 1 Timothy 5.21. We will stop for a moment before explaining what predestination is to focus on what the purpose of predestination is. This will give us greater clarity as we journey through the topic at hand. Our ultimate goal in life and the purpose of predestination is for Christ's glory. God's ultimate goal in the eternally predestined plan of salvation does not end on humans. It ends on the Son of God. His glory has immense priority over our glory. The glory of Christ is the ultimate goal of predestination. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1, 12 so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is described as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. God appointed us to share the greatness of the Son so that the Son might be exalted as the greatest among the great. God destined us to share Christ's glory in order that the glory of the Son might be magnified in the lives of those who are conformed to his image. God created a second born and a third born, a fourth born, a fifth born, and so on and so on, so that Christ might be exalted and praised and honored in the midst of a redeemed people. This purpose gives greater clarity as we pursue to understand the doctrine of predestination. John Calvin didn't come up with the concept of predestination, although he did popularize the issue. He refers to predestination in his institutes as God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. He goes on to qualify that this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth. This is a gift from God, and it is all from God. He did not have to consider anything outside of himself in the creation of this decree. The reality of this doctrine reveals that we are chosen in love by God, because he has willed it, not because we deserve it or he knew that we would choose him. Ephesians 1 verse 4 slips seamlessly into verse 5. The last two words of verse 4 are in love. So the verse reads as follows. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It was in love. 
Romans 8, 28 to 30 holds a lot of weight when we're thinking of this doctrine of predestination. Romans 8, 28 to 30 reads as follows. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These three verses serve us with a doctrinal overload. Within these verses, we have election, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Can we see how the progression of these doctrinal truths are in line with the reformed understanding of the order of salvation? Or should I say that the reformed understanding corresponds to the biblical example we see here in Romans 8. A point of contention arises in verse 29 when we read foreknowledge. This is where people begin to split in this doctrine of predestination. God foreknows all things and all people in one sense. We know that from Isaiah 46.10. But not all are predestined to be conformed to his son. The foreknowing must be qualified in some sense. Because Paul says, whom he foreknew, he predestined. There are two ways to qualify or limit the idea of God's foreknowing. Firstly, one option is to take a position that God knows all things, so he must have known who would choose him. This puts self-determination into the hands of the individual. Or alternatively, that this foreknowing alludes to a special knowing, one that is representative of God's choice and favor. We don't need to substitute words like who would trust in Jesus to make sense of the foreknowledge. The Bible says whom he knew he predestined. There is no immediate need to alter our thinking of the text beyond what God has given us there. When we take the passage as a whole, the thought of human self-determination becomes futile. As we see in verse 30, those whom he called he also justified. There is a progression here from God that isn't possible with man. There are examples of this knowing throughout the Bible. Genesis 18, Amos chapter 3, Psalm 1, Romans 11. It makes sense to me that the foreknowledge refers to the election of those that God has set his favor upon. This is what merits the non-responsive call. It's nothing that we can do to ensure our calling. We are called and we don't have a choice in responding or not. We are called and we respond in the way that God intends. We are called on the basis of our predestination. This passage in Romans says that we are called according to God's purpose. His predestining and his purpose are of the same thing. The doctrine of predestination and the purpose of God are the same. They both seek to share the glory of the preeminent Son of God. The call of God is based on God's act of predestination, which is in turn based on the election or choice that God makes without any respect to our person at all. And the cherry on top of the cake is that it is unconditional. Our election, predestination, and effectual call are all unconditional acts of grace from God to those whom he has called to be part of his family. That has been a brief summary of the doctrine of predestination, illustrated through Romans 8, 28 to 30. But like all things, predestination is not universally agreed upon. Arminius also believed in predestination and said, I do not present as a matter of doubt the fact that God has elected some to salvation and not elected or passed by others. 
what is lacking from Arminius' statement are his presuppositions, which indicate that this election is not based on a divine arbitrary decree, but upon God's foreknowledge of man's merit. Arminians say that God has chosen us, elected to bring to salvation all those whom he foresaw would believe by bringing about their own faith, providing the decisive impetus themselves. In those, God doesn't decisively produce the faith that he foresees. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. Or when Jesus weeps for the unbelief of Jerusalem in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, if God doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone, then surely he gives us all the opportunity to be saved. We see this problem furthered in 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise as some kind slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. These verses do seem to pose an issue to the thought of predestination. We will use the Bible to determine what the Bible says, not our emotional preferences or human thinking. Deuteronomy 28.63 seems to contradict Ezekiel as it says, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. The problem with apparent contradiction in the Bible is that God's will is not a simple thing to understand. After all, he is God and we are but man. His will is something of wonder and complexity that the human mind cannot and will not ever understand. A reality is drawn out that God's will may be two things at once, while not contradicting one another. Deuteronomy 28 reveals that God is delighting in the death of the wicked for the sake of righteousness and justice. While Ezekiel seems to contradict, it actually complements Deuteronomy using different wording. Here God does not delight in the death of the wicked because they are created in his image. God loves them as God loves every person. At any point in time, God can be both delighted and saddened by something that he ordains. The death of Jesus is the perfect example of that apparent contrast, which complements one another under the sovereignty of God. John Piper helpfully comments that texts in the Bible that describe God willing people to be saved should not be ignored or diluted down. But we need to be open that God is God, infinite and more complex than we will ever understand. Regarding 2 Timothy 2.4, it also poses apparent contradictions. But I would say that this occurs in an out-of-context situation. The Arminians jump on this verse and proclaim that God wants us all to be saved. When we read all men here, it serves greater purpose and rationale that this is not an individual and universal phrase, but that it has a sense of a corporate blanket. No corporate grouping of people are excluded from salvation. This isn't so much a calling to salvation, but that no people group would be excluded from the selection process of election. Moreover, the phrase knowledge of truth found here is also found in 2 Timothy 2.25. Again, the context shows that it is God is the one who gives repentance and a knowledge of the truth. We're back to the problem of either man having the final self-determination or that God wills at another level to pass over some an election and effectual calling. If man has the final self-determination, then it reveals more of the will of God that may not actually be what people believe. 
If someone believes that self-determination is man's position, then it reveals that God wills a certain kind of world more, a world where man chooses his fate, than he wills to keep people from being lost. If self-determination is our decision, then the reality is that God wills a world where we can all choose to be lost. Something that makes more sense to me is that God wills a world that instead of willing to lose none, he wills a world in which his purpose is to display his glory by the revelation of his power and wrath and judgment against the ungodly. It provides a biblical rationale for the need of God's sovereignty in our salvation. My final point of contention is that of 2 Peter 3.9. But again, this verse cannot be taken alone. Context is key. Peter is writing to the church, the body of believers. They are already saved, which follows in light of being predestined. He is reminding them, them that there is enough time for the elect to come to faith. 2 Peter 3.14 is showing that God's history timeline includes the repentance and faith of the beloved. I believe that it's fair to say that holding a view of human self-determination is to hold a wrong view of several verses in the Bible, to let emotional preference and human thinking lord over the sovereignty of God. There are implications that the doctrine of predestination has on other areas of our lives and what we believe. The sovereignty of God is the first we will think about. The doctrines of sovereign grace are not overthrown by problems in Scripture. They stand firm and are the precious foundation of our deepest hopes. Predestination reveals God's sovereignty as it reveals the true nature of grace and true desperation of our plight without it. God gets all the glory and we move to love and worship him. The doctrines of God's sovereign grace tend to produce lowliness and meekness and patience among those who embrace them. We call it sovereign grace because grace is not merely an offer of salvation, but is also a power that saves. Paul makes this crystal clear in Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in heavenly places. The reason Paul inserted that parenthesis was to teach us that grace is a power that raises the dead and is totally undeserved. We will never feel the full wonder of grace until we surrender our claim to have the final say in our own salvation. We will never stand in awe of God's sovereignty over our lives and give him the glory for all our salvation until we know ourselves to be so utterly helpless that he had to do it all. And knowing this shapes our lives of prayer and evangelism. Predestination gives hope to our prayer life because it brings hope as God can and will work in lives and situations that seem to be humanly impossible. It's not inconsistent to say that God answers prayers that he has decided before the foundation of the world. It is prayer that God has ordained as a means of bringing his will into action. He wills that things come about by prayer so that we would learn to be more reliant on him and not on ourselves. Without the sovereignty of God, praying for our friends and family is pointless. We can't pray for them if we don't believe that God has the power to save them. If it is merely self-determination, 
we can't pray that prayer. The question is raised around evangelism that because the lost are lost and the elect will be saved, what's the point? The point is that it is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Not only that, the missionary promise that one day there will be believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshipping God in the kingdom. That promise would have no guarantee if salvation were left finally in the self-determining hands of human beings. The fact that God has the right and power to effectually call whom he wills from every people group on earth is the solid foundation of our confidence that the Great Commission will not be frustrated by the hardness of human hearts. The doctrines of grace are the saving message of God in the hard places of world evangelization. Moreover, this doctrine helps us to fully understand and shape the areas of life that drag us down, our pride and our insecurities. A doctrine of predestination removes the root of all boasting and self-reliance, all the pride that we have, and replaces it with a humility that is continually reminded and amazed that we were chosen to be saved, to make more of Christ and less of ourselves. It also gives us a deep security that could not be enjoyed if we believe that God simply designed a general way of salvation with no particular persons in view and left it finally up to us who would belong to this salvation. God shows us regardless of who we are and what we do. It removes the insecurities of not feeling loved or cared for. Self-determination either leads to pride or to despair. When we remove self-determination, we're in a better position to remove pride and despair. Once we realize that God is sovereign on our salvation, everything becomes easier to understand. The aim of predestination as it relates to our good is that we are appointed to share the very glory of the risen Christ, both morally in blameless righteousness and physically in a resurrection body of glory like his. This destiny is the glorification of Romans 8.30. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And it is underway right now in all the children of God as we look into the face of Christ in the gospel and are changed from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Spirit. There is no room for pride and insecurities here. Finally, something that is prevailing across Europe and increasingly more popular within Dublin is around philosophical speculation on how this challenges doctrinal positioning. We are confronted with a choice between popular philosophical speculation on the one hand and pervasive biblical doctrine on the other. Popular philosophy says that we must have the power of ultimate self-determination in order to be accountable for our choices. The Bible, on the other hand, makes clear in a hundred places that we do not have the power of ultimate self-determination and nevertheless are accountable for our choices. Will you go with human philosophy or with the Bible? Has the Bible won your confidence sufficiently that you will submit your inherited notions to its judgments? Or will you continue to force it to submit to your own? One of the criticisms that is sometimes brought against those of us who embrace the doctrines of unconditional election and the sovereignty of grace is that we are enslaved to logic and driven by an unstoppable rationalism that forces us to say things about God which are not taught in scripture. I suspect that this is true of some people. 
but on the most part our experience teaches us that the very opposite is also the case. John Piper tells a story. He says, I asked a friend recently how he handled the words in Acts 13.48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. He said, Oh, I interpret that in the light of all the other scriptures that teach that humans have the power of ultimate self-determination. So I asked, like what? Can you give me any example of such a text? He said, well, no, but it's implied everywhere. And Piper goes on to say that what became clear after a little discussion was that he assumes, he presupposes, that you can't have accountability without human self-determination. And so everywhere he sees accountability in the Bible, he sees the power of final human self-determination. But where does he get this assumption? Where does he get this presupposition? Not from the Bible. He gets it from the common notions of fallen mankind. Now who is enslaved to philosophy and logic. We are presented with a crucial choice. Will we let the scripture teach us things that are strange to our way of thinking? Or will we bring our inherited notions to the text and say, these things can't be, they don't fit my assumptions. In closing, the sovereignty of God in all these areas being shown and the implications of the doctrine of predestination all lead me to believe even more that God holds all power and authority in our salvation and that human beings do not have the final self-determination. Salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end.